Yeah, Monday afternoon, January 10, 1972. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, New Testament Part, continuing the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Dead Sea Community of Qumran. We discussed the um, 144, what is meant by allegorizing and how is it exemplified by the Dead Sea writings? 145, what did Kevin Smith, a British scholar, say about those who compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with the New Testament? You recall this salty remark of his, you might as well say a man is like a fish because they're both, they're both wet when they come out of the water. <laughs> In other words, the resemblances are formal and not the vital or material. Uh, <clears throat> on 46, the relation between the Qumran sect and dissident Essenism, and the relation of both to early Christianity. Now, um, in the first place, which was bigger, the Qumran sect or dissident Essenism? Okay, yeah. Missionary? Yeah, that's just kind of This is an This is a more general movement which concluded more than this community at Qumran. And I don't think you could say that Essenism, taken as a whole, was an organization. This is, well, a little like the um, present Jesus movement on the West Coast, which includes. Um, several different groups, and yet they come under this general uh, inclusive category, and yet they're not organizationally connected. Is that right? Am I up on this, Mr. Beatty? All right, and there's considerable difference between some of them as to their uh, attitudes and so forth about things. But um, Essenism was a movement of dissent from uh, what was called Orthodox Judaism. In other words, the, the kind of official Jewish faith that you find in the New Testament, <clears throat> the Judaism of the temple of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, not surprised somebody wanted to dissent from it because I don't think it was a very good product, certainly, and gravely distorted. This would be like a Paul before his conversion to Christ on the road to Damascus. This uh, misreading of the law as if it were a a way of salvation in itself, or a ladder to climb to heaven by. This is the mistake that uh, later Judaism made in thinking that it is humanly possible to keep the law in such a way as to earn your eternal salvation by it. And of course, when Paul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, this kind of idea is faded right out of his system from then on out. But this is what people like Gamaliel and others believed. And uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees were moderns. They um, held a lot of skeptical traditions picked up from Greek philosophy. But uh, here, um, Essenism is a dissent from both of these. Let's say they dissent from the uh, officially orthodox party and they dissent from, certainly from the uh, Sadducees who were uh, far out uh, from biblical truth. And um, this movement evidently included more than one community and perhaps the groups of people that didn't live in separate communities but were scattered uh, 
in the towns and cities among other people. And the comrade sex is then one aspect or one facet, I believe is the word that the author uses, one example of dissident pessimism. And you realize then there were others and they didn't all match or agree, there were differences, but this one we found a lot of stuff from, so we know more about it. Mr. May? The comrade sex is one brand of essence. Let's say, um, uh, here's um, uh, Kodak Verichrome pen is one brand of Kodak film, but you can also get Exochrome and the Kodak color and so forth too, and they're all films. See? This, the the Comran is the name of a place in the first place. And the Comran covenanters, so-called, the people that made this uh, religious bond among themselves, are one manifestation of the Essene movement, which was bigger than they, and had other manifestations of different type, somewhat, but all of them are protesters and dissenters against the status quo represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, Mr. Harris. Um, did the Pharisees and Sadducees try to grab these people over? I think they probably expressed themselves about them in unfriendly language, but I don't know of any record of them. You see, in the in the period from about 63 B.C., Palestine was under the iron hand of Rome, and therefore, however much certain sects of the Jews hated others, it was not in their power to do very much about it. When they wanted Jesus crucified, they said to Pilate, "We don't have the authority to put anybody to death." Remember that. And so the, the uh, let's say, capstone of Roman rule, Pax Romana, the Roman peace in Palestine, would prevent um, active persecution. Now, I don't doubt there were sermons in synagogues that were pretty uh, bitter against some of these people. And uh, you see, this is understandable. Uh, everybody that goes to a community like Qumran is saying by that that these people in Jerusalem are not up to standard, and uh, this implies that they are religiously um, neglectful or defective, and this is therefore a little slam at their pride, which they could hardly be expected to take with joy and gladness. <laughs> All right, is that answered now? Okay. Now then, <clears throat> the relation of both to early Christianity. Uh, John Allegro of England said that this would require the complete rewriting or reconsideration of what Christianity means. That is an extreme view that um, hardly any responsible writer has maintained, not only those who are evangelical Christians, but those who are secular historians and those who are modern in their views have not claimed anything as radical as that. This is unscholarly. It's a claim that... Uh, well, they told him, in effect, in somewhat national language, to put up or shut up. And he put up, or he shut up <laughs> after that. Now, uh, according to, um, to Blakelock, this has a background relation to early Christianity only. Um, this shows one piece out of the pie, one example of the kind of thinking that was going on in the Jewish world, especially in Palestine, just before the time of the beginning of Christianity, with 
of actions and reactions. Some of this type of thinking you pick up here and there in the New Testament. People come to Jesus and say, John's disciples fast and your disciples eat and drink and things like this, you see. You can pick up little little samples of this uh, background thinking here and there. Or the question raised about divorce. Uh, they had two schools of rabbis on this, and one was very liberal and allowed divorce for almost anything, and the other school was extremely strict and would hardly allow it at all. Hillel and Shammai, two, two rabbis from the pre-Christian period, and uh, this was keenly debated. This was a moot question among the Jews. Now, this is the kind of relation that the Essene movement had to Christianity. It's part of the background, the backdrop of the stage, uh, in front of which real biblical Christianity got its start. And when God sent his son into the world, things began to move uh, toward the accomplishment of that redemptive purpose. And this was the soil in which, um, I say, this took root and against which it partly reacted and which was there before Christianity came on the scene. Now, um, 147 here, those who are emotionally committed to the anti-Christian view, is there such a thing as being emotionally committed to a theological view or a philosophical view? And we get away from that ourselves completely. You see, this idea of absolute academic neutrality is, um, this is a mirage. This is like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It hasn't actually been found. Nobody is really neutral between God and the opposite of faith in God. Everybody, and everybody that isn't born again of the Holy Spirit has a sinful bias. And this has to be overcome. This is why we need to be born again by spiritual change. Now then, those who are emotionally committed to the anti-Christian view are in difficulties with the gospel. I think we looked at this a little bit. This is Son uh, Agro and others who state that um, outside the New Testament there's hardly any evidence. Uh, the point is that inside the New Testament there's a tremendous amount of evidence and uh, Judged by ordinary uh, canons and standards of historical study and research, it is first-class evidence. Now, of course, if somebody is going to side against all supernatural um, factors, like David Hume, who said it's more uh, probable that everybody is mistaken than that a miracle ever happened, if they're going to hold a radical anti-supernaturalist view which rules it out as philosophically impossible before you even look at the evidence, then uh, it doesn't matter what the New Testament says, it can't be true. But if a person is not biased in that way and is willing to read the material and uh, try to see it with an open mind, the New Testament is not, um, let's say, uh, defective as evidence. It is uh, much better than many evidences we have for events in ancient secular history that uh, hardly anybody would uh, think of questioning. Now, um, 
And so much for that. 149 also about Christianity's origin as a myth. 150, but authentic historical facts show that Christianity was widely spread and firmly rooted before the time when the Qumran settlement was destroyed. Uh, when was the Qumran settlement destroyed? Probably, according to the book. 68. You see, the, the Jewish revolt in about that year and the great Jewish-Roman War, 68 to 70, ending in an overwhelming Roman victory in the year 70. Temple was destroyed, city destroyed, large part of the people killed, and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> 68, the Roman patrols found and burnt Qumran. That is, they burnt what was combusted at Qumran, what they could find. The last year of Nero being the emperor. And um, uh, four years before that, according to the book, um, was the great fire at Rome, which Nero blamed on the Christians. The story is that he set fire to the city himself and, and sat on the roof of his palace and played the fiddle or the guitar or something while the city burned, and in order to have somebody to blame it on, blamed it on the Christians. See, which of those movies about this? New Testament time had this in with pictures of the great fire. Corvati, that's the one. That's the one with the chariot race too. That's Ben Hurt. All right. Corvati, yeah. And Nero um, may or may not have set the fire to the city himself, but in any rate, uh, he he uh, certainly did, uh, or he said to have blamed it on the Christians. Um. Twenty years earlier, if the Nazareth decree has been rightly understood by us, and Nero's predecessors had heard of the explanation of the empty tomb. And seven years before that, um, Claudius had um, made some references to the Jews and had objected to some of their doings. Now, these are trifles, page 143. At the rear of Paul of Tarsus, there are three cultures. What would those be? Jewish, Greek, and Roman. There are the three great cultures of the ancient world. Frank uh, for intellect by T.R. Glover, great classical scholar, with Plato himself, had ended before Homeland went its pathetic way. Now, um, these are the historical facts about Claudius, about the fire in Rome, about the... You see, um, whether the Christians set the fire in Rome is not proved. I would say being a Christian, I hope they didn't. But Nero couldn't have blamed this on the Christians unless there were a lot of them there. That's the point of this. The fact that he blamed this on the Christians uh, indirectly proves there were a lot of Christians. If there were only three or four Christians in Rome, Nobody would have thought of blaming the fire on them. If there were thousands of them or more, that would be different. This would be a good bunch to make a scapegoat or something. The great Reichstag fire in Germany just before Hitler came into power, about 1932, I believe, the Reichstag on Capitol Hill, uh, evidently set fire by the Nazi uh, insurgents themselves but then blamed on the Jews, who almost certainly had nothing to do with it. 
Now, this is a favorite gimmick of uh, people are trying to get away with something. You do something off and then you blame it on somebody else. All right, now, item um, 51 is about this dagger found at Stonehenge. 152, the third force in Palestine. What does he mean here by the third force? Mr. Brown? All right, religious people. Now, of course, there's the Romans and a lot of other folks in there, too, but among the Jews, the third force among the Jews in Palestine, uh, the Pharisees, the, the uh, theologically uh, recognized as correct party, the Sadducees, the church machine, and Sahus also with the Romans, and in charge of the temple and its uh, juicy appointments and revenues and so forth. The third force then would be the core, he says here, of faithful folks who kept true religion alive in the face of these errors and corruption. And uh, mostly um, relatively uneducated and common people. And examples of this would be the uh, common people who heard Jesus gladly, the shepherds who came to the manger at Bethlehem, and um, others of this type. So the third force, probably in, in the long run, and by God's intention and plans, more influential than either the scribes or the Pharisees or both put together. Somebody said, one with God is a majority. Mr. Canary, you believe that? One with God is a majority? Well, in the long run, God is going to win out, isn't it? So the one person who is today in a minority and is talked against and perhaps even persecuted or badly treated, if he is with God and God is going to have the last word and win the victory in the end, why he's in a way in the majority, he's on the winning side anyhow. Although, of course, this doesn't happen overnight. It may take a while. The, the old Romans had a proverb the mills of the gods grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. Now, that's about the pagan gods. You can change that if you wish. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. And there's more to the poem. But uh, uh, God's purposes, while not geared to our hasty timetable, are terrifically devastating when they finally come true. And the longer they are delayed in the fulfillment, the bigger the crash when it finally comes. And this has been verified over and over again, of course. Now, um, the role of the wilderness deep in the Hebrew consciousness was the distrust of the city. You recall in the Old Testament who is recorded to have built the world's first city? King. Now, it couldn't have been much of a city compared with Pittsburgh. Uh, anything else that we would call a city. In the Old Testament, the idea of a city is not a large population, but a wall around it that can be defended against intruders if necessary. And a city might have only a half a dozen houses, but if it's got a wall around it and a <clears throat> fortification that you intend to be defensible, all right, this is a city. And um, today, of course, the these cities have walls. They aren't any good since airplanes were invented. But um, back in Bible times, a, a good wall was, was something. When fighting was done with spears and stones and bows and arrows, why uh, uh, a good 
to be called strong masonry wall was pretty good protection. All right, uh, distrust of the city. And he cites here Abraham and the patriarchs and the, the spiritual ideology of these men living in tents. Now, of course, you could say, of course they lived in tents. So why wouldn't they? They were shepherds and they had to follow their flocks and herds around where the grass was. And this is like living in a trailer today instead of in a house with the solid foundations built deep into the earth. A trailer, you can hitch onto a tractor and move it around somewhere. And so, from the, just the purely um, economic and worldly point of view, it was a natural for these men to live in tents. However, in the New Testament, the Epistle of the Hebrews discusses the philosophy involved in this and suggests there's more to this than simply economics. Living in tents and confessing they were strangers and sojourners on the earth. Our new dining hall across the sea, our great pride and joy, is intended to stay there. We hope it'll last our time in spite of bomb threats. Supposed to stay there. A tent, on the other hand, is movable and uh, can be moved and is moved to a new location. And so the tent is a symbol of a temporary dwelling in a place as the building with permanent foundations is a symbol of intention to stay there for cheap. And so this becomes, in the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were tent dwellers, a symbol of their um, philosophy of life by which they regarded this life as a preparation for the real life, which is that of eternity and which is the long life that will last forever. And this is deeply embedded, we read, in the Hebrew consciousness. So um, many people evidently felt this way. And um, read, for instance, this phrase, to your tents, O Israel. And once a year they lived in tents. How would you like to do that? If come the Feast of Tabernacles, you uh, run in the yard and fix you a little shelter of um, tree branches and so forth, and you sleep out there and you eat out there and you talk and visit and pray and everything else out there for one week. Would this uh, be popular today? A form of getting away from it all? Maybe it wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't. I saw a cartoon of a man and wife and several kids and a dog and a cat going to the seashore for a vacation and they have their car clear full and piled up on the top of stuff and pulling a trailer behind and he says to her, let's face it, we're not getting away from it all, we're taking it all with us. <laughs> and. Uh, I don't know. I think there's something a little phony about people that go to live in the great north woods and have got to take an electric percolator that works with a storage battery with them and uh, all this sort of gear and to duplicate the life of the city out in the wild. If you're going out in the wild, why not to live like the wild for a while and then come home and live like we Americans usually do. But uh, the people of Israel once a year were to live out in booths for a few days. Now, would this have a religious implication? Well, Mr. Brown? Probably Yeah, and going back behind that even to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not feasible for them as a whole nation to live in tents forever in Palestine, but you can do it um, just occasionally like this to as a sort of a token 
a recollection of this, calling it to mind. And remember, this is not our eternal and permanent home. Canaan that Joshua led the people of Israel into was not their true Sabbath rest, according to Hebrews. It was still a prototype of something yet to come, and that, of course, is that which is eternal. Now, this is the background of people like these um, Jews that went to Qumran, attempting to get away from it all. Although it is only um, 20 or so miles from Bethlehem, Still, it is one of the most desolate-looking places on earth. Nobody lived there in the Bible times, and nobody lives there today. It's arid, rocky, barren, with cliffs uh, jumping down toward the Dead Sea, which is so um, and such a salty, oily look that it's said that even birds avoid flying over it if they can. Uh, there are practically no boats on the Dead Sea, although there have been a few modern motor launches. But uh, this um, forsaken, isolated, desolate place was their idea of a place where you could, let's say, attend upon the Lord and get ready for life eternal without the uh, constant busy distractions of life in a place like Jerusalem. You know, when in Jerome, St. Jerome, along about the year 400, was commissioned by the Bishop of Rome or the Pope to make a new and better translation of the Bible in Latin. And he didn't want to do it, but it was his job. He finally had to do it. And I'll never get it done in Rome. Too much going on. I didn't have telephones either, but too much going on. Too many interruptions. So he went to Bethlehem, just uh, on the border of the Qumran country, and got him a house where he had comparatively speaking gotten away from it all and could work at his scholarly labors uh, with the minimum of distraction. And uh, there he got this amazing task done and uh, very well done, too. Now then, um, um, 154, John the Baptist, what saying of his, quoted incidentally from the Old Testament, calls to mind this idea of the wilderness being a place where you can find God better than in the city. What was it? Yeah, voice crying. Remember they sent messengers, the temple crowd sent messengers to him and said, are you he that should come and so forth? Are you the Messiah? And he said, no. And, well, what are you? I'm voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path safe. Now this is quoted uh, from um, Isaiah, I think, one of the prophets anyway, and uh, is, is a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, but he calls himself a voice crying in the wilderness. And he did not go into the city to baptize and preach and evangelize, but he stayed out on the edge of things, either at the Jordan River or on the edge of the desert, and the people came out to him. So that this ideology of getting away from the city to the open spaces uh, found expression also in the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, um, the Roman writer Pliny refers to the community with some inaccuracy. Roman writer Pliny described the sects of the Essenes, and this is on the bottom of 146 and the top of page 147. Um, 
This is not completely accurate according to what has been discovered there and the writings that have been uh, read and translated. But you notice some of the things he said. Then he uh, refers to the dead just far enough from its shore to avoid its baneful influences with the Essenes. They form a solitary community and they inspire our admiration more than any other community in the whole world. They live without women. Is this why he admired them more than anything else in the whole world? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, they have renounced all sex life. They live without money and without any company save that of the palm tree. Now that again is exaggerated because at the height of the Qumran community there were probably several hundred people there. So this was not just an absolute solitary confinement out in the open spaces. From day to day their numbers are maintained by the stream of people who seek them out and join them from far and wide. These people are driven to adopt the Essenes' way of life through weariness of ordinary life and by reason of the change of fortune. Thus, through thousands of generations, incredible to relate, this community in which no one is ever born continues without uh, dying. Other people's weariness of life is the secret of their abiding fertility. Now, thousands of generations. If there's five generations to a hundred years, uh, how many years would 1,000 generations be? Five in a century, and uh, how many times is five going to a thousand? Huh? Five into a thousand goes 200 times, all right? 200 centuries would be 20,000 years, is that right? <coughs> 20,000 years. Now, is, I ask you, is there any evidence that Qumran community had existed for 20,000 years? Were they there on the day when Noah beached the ark, whenever that was? Uh, <clears throat> this is obviously a piece of uh, an extreme type of exaggeration or hyperbole. The evidence indicates these people were there for maybe less than 100 years, not 20,000 or anything like that. So that's an extreme statement. Below their headquarters was the town of Angidai. This is on the shore of the western shore of the Dead Sea, and a place where David used to hide out to get away from Saul, who was out to kill him if he could. His fertility and palm grows formerly made it second only to Jerusalem, but now, like Jerusalem itself, it lies a heap of ashes, spread by the Romans. Next comes Masada, a fortress on a rock itself, also not far from the Dead Sea, on the other side of the Dead Sea, however, I believe, and there is the frontier of Judea. Now, Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, published, um, Laycock says, 80 years ago, about 1890, a standard work, slightly influenced by Biblical criticism and theological liberalism. Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, a lot of good things in it, but uh, just keep your eyes open and your conscience working while you read it. And uh, this discounted Pliny's account as if it was simply a wild yarn or tale. Um, dismissed this uh, as mistaken. And now with the writings discovered at Qumran, it has been proved that by and large 
except for an occasional overstatement there, Pliny was correct, and Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible was wrong. So uh, Pliny was right. And uh, 357 now. Uh, how has modern scholarship substantiated what Pliny wrote? Now, you realize when we talk about the Dead Sea, it isn't only the scrolls, but the remains of the community that was there. Uh, does this book not give a picture of the, of the geographic life they did? The Ruins of Qumran, page 147. That certainly isn't much today. But the geographic gave a picture of um, a reconstruction from the ruins, as this is believed to have been when it was actually inhabited and uh, going concern. And it was really something. They had gotten away from it all, and they had also brought part of it there with them. They had a, a permanent and a very good water supply brought by a, an irrigation ditch or aqueduct from 20 or more miles away, and other features of this kind. And we have learned about as much about these people from foundations and ruins in the soil as we have from their writings. You see, there's historical evidence and there's archaeological evidence. And um, so um, the author also suggests that the people escaped as evidenced by the fact that they had, were able to hide their books before they had to get away from there. Uh, what verse in St. Paul's writings in the New Testament is illustrated by the Dead Sea Scrolls? This treasure we have in what? Earthen vessels. And their treasure was put in earthenware jugs or jars and stored and sealed at the top and stored in this way for safekeeping. So Paul uses this. This apparently was a common practice in his day. He uses this as an illustration of Christian truth and salvation is a treasure which we have in earthen vessels. Now then, um, Claim 59, the meaning of the Dead Sea Scrolls for Christians of today. Uh, notice the, uh, not, not the last few lines, but the paragraph just above that. It may be summed up in three exhortations. Let them seek simplicity in their faith, avoid the perils of social compromise. Let them find unity in a common devotion to their God. Let them be prepared to see the benison of heaven rest on the devoted rather than the proud, the humble rather than the great. Now, is that all good advice for us? Well, it's good advice as far as it goes. The trouble is it doesn't go far enough. Um, these people were the humble and not the great, all right. I'm not too sure they were very humble, though. I rather think they're a little bit like the character in Charles Dickens who was proud of his humility. Is that possible? Mrs. Wilson, can a person be proud of his humility? This is all too often found. You know, there's a guy in which is one of, one of Dickens' novels, Uriah Heep. Um, just that very name reeks of false humility. Uriah Heep, <laughs> who was always going around saying how no good he is, proud of his humility. And this is uh, somebody said there's three kinds of pride there's pride of race, and there's pride of faith, and there's pride of grace. 
and the pride of grace is by far the worst of the three. <laughs> and I guess that's true. When people start getting proud of themselves as religionists, they need what one of our religious emphasis week speakers needed to be converted. That's what they need. All right. <clears throat> now then, uh, um, 160. Through what New Testament figure, if at all, was Christianity partly prepared for by the Qumran group, according to Blakelock? Who would this be? Very easy. Mr. Beatty. John the Baptist. Can this be proved that he was influenced by them? You see, was he ever a member of this community? Was he ever a resident without being a member in this community? Or was he, let's say, not subordinate to this, but parallel to it? And you can't tell. It is possible. Now, it says of John that um, he was in the desert until his showing out of Israel. And there he lived on what you could get in the desert. It mentions two items, locusts and wild honey. Mr. Harris, which of those would you prefer if you had to choose one or the other? You take the wild honey. I asked a kid's class in China once, uh, what did John the Baptist wear? And a little Chinese girl about 10 years old said he wore an garment made of camel's hair. That's right. Now what did he eat? He says, I don't know, but I expect probably it was camel meat. <laughs> <laughs> this was not it. Locusts, I think, are similar to our grasshoppers, and the people in the Orient do eat them. They eat them fried. I've never eaten fried locusts, but I have eaten uh, roasted sparrows. And I'm glad all they're properly, properly fixed up. And my wife has tasted fried popcorn cocoons. Uh, <clears throat> very lovely Chinese girl. She would have made a beauty contest winner working in our mission. And she went home for a short vacation a few hundred miles away with her folks and came back with a candy box full of these fried silkworm cocoons, considered a great delicacy. You open them like that and pull the dead... Uh, grub out and eat the rest and it has a rich fatty sort of a taste and Mrs. Ross tasted one and put the box aside and uh, didn't want to offend this lovely young thing that was working at our mission and uh, Miss Lee and uh, come nighttime I went out in the kitchen to get a drink of water and I came back I said Marion you know what those things have hatched and they're buzzing around the kitchen and she said ooh <laughs> And then the next day, we had a woman named Mrs. Wu who came in to do uh, washing of clothes and general housework uh, for, for us. And um, my wife said to Mrs. Wu, would you um, care to take that box of fried silkworm cocoons and take them home with you and not say anything about it to Miss Lee? Me? Put those things in my mouth? I should say not. No Chinese with the slightest bit of cleanliness and self-respect would eat a thing like that. But I'll tell you what, my husband came, comes from a place where they eat those things. I'll take them home and give them to him. <laughs> now, uh, I suppose it is possible that John was a resident in the Qumran community or in some similar community. It is not necessary to say that locusts and wild honey were his sole diet for years and years. And this is simply a way of saying he ate what the desert afforded. And um, uh, it would not be exactly what you get in the cafeteria or the uh, dining hall across the street. But um, 
this is only conjectural. It can't be proved. However, John's whole attitude, asceticism, uh, he came, we read, neither eating nor drinking. He was clad in rough, coarse clothes and disdained the uh, daintinesses and refinements of Jerusalem society. And uh, this would be all thoroughly fitting and in keeping with the idea that he had been connected with the Qumran people or with a similar group somewhere for a while in his life. He had a better understanding of scripture than they had, though, and uh, certainly a different function in God's plan. Now, um, the Dead Sea Isaiah scroll, does this prove that, um, see, they found two of these. One is complete, except the frazzlement on the outside of the roll that has worn away a little bit of the first chapter. The other one is not complete, but um, substantially complete, though. This first one, uh, pictured in your book, does this prove that uh, there was only one Isaiah and that Isaiah was not of multiple authorship as modern scholarship tends to claim? How about that, uh, Mr. Bailey? Does it? Well, it tends to judge that it's very possible because the 39th and the 40th chapter right now set together. Now, this is a negative argument. There is no break. Between the 39th and the fact, what we today call chapter 40 ends on the last line of a column. And uh, if the transcriber of this that made this rule had any idea that from this point on it was written by a different man at a different time, 150 more years later, he would think at least he would have left that last line blank and gone on the top of the next column. However, this doesn't conclusively prove it. All you can say is. Um, it certainly doesn't indicate any belief in a break in the book at this point. It just runs right along continuously. Incidentally, this parchment was too expensive to leave blank spaces just for fun. And uh, you didn't do that. You used it up uh, because of the costliness of it. All right, I will see when...